As August draws to a close and we limber up for autumn evenings, this edition of Confect Corner takes stock on summer travels, long days on the beach with a novel in hand, and looks forward to crisp mornings, museum visits and new ventures. This show coincides with the launch of issue four of Confect magazine. It's a publication brimming with late summer recipes, arresting roundtable debates and fresh ideas. It's a celebration of the changing season and a spirit of what the French call le rentrée, a return to the city, to friends and to new projects. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. When I wrote this book, I wrote it with the mind and um, the soul of myself as a child, with the way I was looking at this farm, at this land when I was a little girl. I remember wearing like jumpers on my legs and hats. You had to have a hat with everything. And it was a completely head to toe glitter outfit that I wore. And then I made a, I think a mini dress out of fake fur, which I boiled in in the club. Welcome to the seventh episode of Confect Corner. Each month I'm joined by Julian DeBias and Confect style director Marcella Palak and for the first time ever we are all in one studio together. This is so wonderful to see Marcella in London. Yes, so happy to be here with all of you. I mean, we're so excited. It's a <laughs> the reunion. <laughs> never happened. It's so funny because oh. you know this idea. We've we've managed to create this wonderful conversation. Um, conversation, but across you know across the across the pond. The beauty of um, radio. There you go. <laughs> sadly, the summer isn't really too bright and wonderful for you, but that's very authentically London, Marcella. So yeah. I understood British summer. <laughs> yeah, I have a jumper and a jacket <laughs> and an umbrella. I hope. Well, just. Like in Confect magazine, we like to set the tone at the start of the programme with something that's caught our attention this month. Gillian, you've been in Parma, lucky you, where you've stumbled upon a new shop. Oh, a real secret uh, discovery I'm going to share with you. I was wandering the gorgeous lanes in the old town of Palma and came across a doorway, which I initially thought was someone's private apartment. You look through and you see table with flowers and bottles And I was just literally drawn across the threshold. And then I realized, no, I think it's a shop. And I turn right and left and you see old pieces of furniture with old photographs and albums. And you carry on down this little journey of an old apartment. It was a real apartment to discover the collection room of the most beautiful perfumery. And you are uh, surrounded by bottles of scent that were inspired by the Balearic Islands, botanicals on the island, sea breeze. And it really is a tribute to the importance of experience in retail. You know, nothing will beat that sense of discovery, where the, the process of entering a space and how they create something special for you. The fragrances are divine, but really it's something that you must go to experience and then share with all your friends. So it's called Arconisia and it's in Palma, Mallorca. Amazing. It feels like something you can bottle your holiday and take it <laughs> take it home, take totally. the Balearic breezes with you. Totally. Martella, you've been in the mountains. Um, any discoveries from the peaks? Yeah, I came back very, very um, happy. Between 
Engadine and the Italian border is the Bergel Valley. Probably you never heard about it. It's a short, a very steep valley and the mountains look much higher than in Engadine because the altitude of the Bergel Valley is much lower. So the mountains look really high and steep. It's also the valley where the famous Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti was born. And you suddenly understand his um, the verticality of his sculptures. They are very thin and long. And you see the relation between these high, steep mountains and these thin, uh, thin, long sculptures. Yeah, you find also a lot of other arts, I think, uh, due to to the roots of Alberto Giacometti. There is a lot of arts exhibitions going on in Bergel Valley, which is very, very refreshing. After a physically hard hike, it's very refreshing to see a nice art exhibition. And, of course, don't miss the beautiful uh, historic uh, Hotel Palazzo Salis, where you have an amazing view of um, all these mountains and the valley. Mm. And, of course, excellent regional wine and food. Oh, Sophie, I think next time we go to Switzerland, uh, we're due for an excursion there. Certainly. It sounds like the valley that's sort of almost undiscovered or the concept of a crowded mountain is probably um, impossible. But I expect there are quite a few people up in the Engadine. It's so, actually, so yes. <laughs> actually, yes. No, it, you're, you're um, absolutely right. It was very, very crowded because I think supposed to the fresh air and like the heat waves more southern in Italy so a lot of Italian tourists were there and yeah from all the countries really a lot of tourists and um, but if you go a little bit higher then you're quite alone so the physically demanding hikes um, yeah don't attract so many people. Sophie I'm always curious about your discoveries Um, what, what do you have for us today? So I have just really come back from spending a few nights in a hut, a little tiny cabin <laughs> on the beach um, in Suffolk, which is on the east coast of, of England. But it's it's been a really beautiful experience because there's a sort of cluster of these black timber huts <laughs> and they just have sort of beds and kitchens and very minimal sort of utilities. There's a little community of artists and writers and people who just spend their days sort of pottering around their huts. And you get up in the morning, go straight into the sea before you've even had a chance to sort of <laughs> kind of have a cup of tea or anything. And you feel so different after a few days. And I was reflecting, I mean, I think the kind of morning plunge is is very good good for you, but it's also just talking, sitting in, a, in almost like in a little community, sort of pre-industrial kind of hamlet, and just chatting to anyone that walks by and, and just being content with that very small proximity. And I feel really revived by it. The English seaside has had for a long time a bad rap, but where were you? Warbleswick. It's a little tiny place down on a sort of marsh, and you can just get fresh fish and have big fires on the beach and by the end of a few days you feel like a pebble <laughs> and then reimagine London feeling a little bit dazed <laughs> but um, I think there's a, really a lot to recommend sometimes just stripping back everything and going down to the bare essentials and seeing how you respond and then when you do come back to your own house or flat you appreciate everything so much more as well. And Sophie, did you have time to read uh, an interesting book during your holidays? I did. Plenty of time on the 
mini veranda to read, in fact, the latest book by Leila Slimani, the French-Moroccan writer, who is, in fact, also our first guest today. Leila Slimani came to the world's attention in 2016 with her thrilling debut novel, Lullaby, a dark tale of a nanny's descent into madness and finally murder, which earned her France's prestigious Prix Goncourt. Alongside her fiction writing, she's also French President Emmanuel Macron's personal representative for the promotion of the French language and culture, a regular columnist for French press and a women's rights activist. And if it wasn't impressive enough, she's just embarked on her next literary adventure, a trilogy that weaves her family's own history into a broader story of Morocco's colonial and post-colonial struggle. A little earlier, I spoke to Leila down the line from Paris to discuss the first part of the trilogy, The Country of Others. This is a story about a French woman from Alsace who falls in love with a Moroccan officer during the war and then moves out to Morocco, um, a Moroccan-French officer, I should say, and, and sort of joins his family. And I wondered, you know, you're drawing some from some of your own family history for this work. How did you go about researching it and what elements of this story are pulled from your own family history? You know, the construction of this book is very, very special, very particular, because at the beginning, um, I didn't really make research because I just tried to remember what my grandmother told me about her childhood, about her youth, about uh, the war. And um, it was just after the Goncourt Prize, I was traveling a lot and I don't know why, but when I was in the planes traveling in trains or alone in my hotel, I was always thinking about her and about all the stories she told me. And I was thinking it would make a wonderful novel. And then when I began to write the book, I made, of course, a lot of research, historical research. I, I read a lot of books. Um, I tried to find um, archives like uh, photographs, uh, old movies and things like that about, uh, about Morocco. And of course, I interviewed my own mother, my aunt. So it's a mix of real experience, uh, history research, and of course, my own souvenir of uh, how my grandmother told me her, her life. And do you think that as a writer, that personal attachment to the story um, really changed the way you approached the writing process? Because, I mean, you, you say it's memories of your grandmother, but some of these descriptions are so vivid. Some of the descriptions of the landscape arriving in this arid um, land and the kind of sense of alienation is so so well told. Do you feel like it really aided your your creative process as well? You know, I think that uh, when I wrote this book, I wrote it with the mind and uh, the soul of myself as a child, with my emotion as a child, with the way I was looking at this farm, at this land when I was a little girl. Because when I, when I was like six or eight, I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' farm and I was afraid, at the same time fascinated and afraid, afraid by the animals, by the nature, and um, also fascinated by the beauty of the, the landscape, by the flowers, by how my, my grandmother used to 
to interact with the the people in the in the farm so i think that i tried to to use that to use that um, that very mixed feeling that you can have when you're a child and also i tried to use the the emotion i felt when she was telling me those stories you know when you are a child and someone is telling you a story there's like a movie in your head and i had a movie in my head and the main character was a woman and this woman was not exactly my grandmother it was a character of a movie the character of a novel it was someone extraordinary and i tried to tell the story of this character the character that was built in my mind when i was a child and my grandmother was telling me all that so it's a fascinating story and it really addresses the sort of colonial history of morocco in very original way i mean i feel like the idea of this you know white alsatian woman arriving in Morocco and she doesn't find a place with the colonial sort of rulers and, and, and the white women in their dresses because she's married to a local. But then she doesn't find a place really with her own family because they see her as something quite removed. It feels like she, Mathilde, is constantly searching for her place. And I I wondered how you feel this this story sort of explores that theme and also how what the reaction to Mathilde's story has been from both Moroccan readers and French readers in Paris and beyond. Um, first, this feeling of um, looking for your place, not finding your place and feeling like a stranger is a, a feeling I can completely relate to. And I think it's a very universal feeling. And even though my story is... Um, taking place during colonialism in a very particular moment uh, in the history of Morocco. I I wanted it to be also universal. I think it's the story of anyone who is experiencing migration, exile, and uh, adaptation to a new culture, to a new tradition. Uh, I think that in France, people were surprised, uh, first of all, by the fact that the migration is in the other way than usual. Usually the migration is from Morocco to France. And uh, uh, today in France, when you ask people, they see Moroccans like migrants, potential migrants. And they never think of the fact that for a very long time, uh, Morocco... Uh, welcomed a lot of uh, French people, but not only French, European people. And in my book, you can meet a a Hungarian man, a Greek man, a lot of people, poor people, especially at that time, they would come to Morocco with the idea of adventure and with the desire to uh, be rich and to dominate. So I wanted also uh, French people to, to to remember that. And in Morocco, I think that um, they were very, very pleased and maybe proud also that uh, their history, the history of the modern Morocco, could be the main topic of uh, a saga. And a saga that is not, I tried not to write something that is exotic or uh, folkloric, as we say in in French, but something that is modern, as you could could write about Russia or France or England or United States. And um, I think that uh, Moroccan people were happy about that. And I received a lot, a lot of of messages, of letters of uh, Moroccan readers who told me I knew nothing about that time. And uh, now, after reading this book, I think I'm going to ask questions to my mother, to my father, because they never told me. 
because you know the generation of my parents and my grandparents for them colonization is a taboo it's not only a taboo in Europe it's also a taboo in our countries because people don't want to talk about a period of time where they felt so humiliated and where they were victim of uh, racism and, and domination so yeah I hope it it gave the, the opportunity to my reader to have this conversation as we were saying you know this is a very I mean, it's a very rich theme. It's it's a very interesting time with this uh, narrative of of the you know the mid fifties, this struggle for independence. But there's also some very interesting personal stories within the family, and a lot of what Matilde has to put up with is the intense patriarchy of her situation that she marries into. But then there's also some wonderful and very well observed relationships women within the family imposing sort of that patriarchy on each other. And I, and I think that's something that really leapt out at me in, in, in some ways, that, you know, women who've been victims of the patriarchy in, in their own lives then go and sort of um, rule, you know, impose that on, on their sisters, on, on, their, on their daughters, um, particularly the relationship between Selma and Mathilde, this idea that one broken-hearted woman would kind of facilitate the same situation to happen to a younger generation and I wonder if that seems to be a very interesting theme that you you, you explore in the book. Yes absolutely you're absolutely right and I really wanted to explore that and um, you can draw a parallel between men and women in that men for instance when a man is humiliated for instance by colonization by domination he will have um the, he will intend to dominate himself. That's something that Franz Fanon writes all the time. A man who is humiliated will humiliate. A man who is dominated will dominate. And I think that for women, it's, um, it's quite the same, as you said. And my mother always told me that uh, what was very difficult when she was young is that there were no solidarity between women, no sorority. And um, she always told me, I don't want to be this kind of mother with you, the kind of mother who only says, don't get pregnant, don't go out, don't do this, don't do that. And who doesn't have, um, who doesn't trust, first of all, her, her daughter, and who has always the, the feeling that it's your fault, that it's because of you that uh, those things uh, happened. And I think that one of the most powerful tools of patriarchy is to make it impossible for women to be sisters or to, to have this kind of, uh, uh, of solidarity. That's, um, that's absolutely, absolutely right. There is a sense of, of struggle and, um, you know, especially Amin and Mathilde, you know, struggling against the elements, trying to plough this arid land. And, but then there are moments of salvation and, and in a way nature tells that tale so beautifully. The idea of citrus, uh, you know, this Hungarian uh, doctor arrives and, and sort of plucks a lemon and says, you know, this is going to uh, change your life. And they do succeed. They do start making the land work for them. And I wondered, you know, is that something that happened in your family? Do you feel like there's a sense of trial, but also, you know, the bounty um, at the end of it? Yes, of course. And, you know, uh, my grandfather, he was a farmer and all his life, he he was his, 
struggling because when you work it with the with the nature you are always struggling because something bad can always happen the day before you you are supposed to take all your citrus your orange i don't know how to say the récolte but the day before you can have um, a rain or a fire or it's too hot or it's too cold so he was always anxious always struggling uh, there is nothing sad or dark in describing that uh, life is is made of of struggle and life is made of uh, of difficulties also and uh, sometimes we succeed sometimes not and um, i feel that there is a parallel between writing and working as a as a farmer because you are always also struggling and sometimes you don't succeed and you don't know why it doesn't come and sometimes it grows and it's beautiful so yeah i wanted also to yeah to give a tribute to farmers because without them we couldn't leave and their work is so hard and sometimes it's so we are so ungrateful to them well this is a trilogy and i think that's for me very good news because the book is is so arresting and interesting and, and and leaves you sort of wondering very much what the next episode will be in this trilogy um can you give us an uh, an insight into where you're going to take this next yes the the, the next book I, that i've almost finished is uh taking place in the 60s and especially the summer of uh, 69 in a very different Morocco, uh, independent Morocco, a Morocco also that is dominated by a new king, a very authoritarian and violent king, and also a Morocco that is influenced by the hippie movement. And during this uh, very short period of time, 68 to 72, uh, there is a big hippie movement in, in Morocco. So uh, I want also to show to people that um, we have a little bit of sex, drug, and, and rock and roll, even if we are a, a Muslim country, but uh, we are not only that. We have a lot of, uh, of different uh, moments in our history. Leila Slimani's new book, The Country of Others, is out now. Marcella, we also have a brand new publication out this month, issue four of Confect. Uh, what can readers expect? So first of all, some great finds at the tone. For example, my favorite is the pyjama of Praline Lemou. And I also love her name because I never uh, heard somebody with the name uh, Praline. And I just love it. It's the perfect name for, for our confect. And then we have the original lapish boots for cold winters, which are really heaven. I can't wait for the Swiss winters to wear them. And then the most beautiful sweet bag, but I don't tell you more. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so. just some, some great finds you have to see in the first pages of the magazine. But there is much more, of course. Then we have, for example, also the discovered um, the quite unknown designer Federico Cina, who is working uh, with prints. And I think his signature element in his... Um, very modern fashion is um, a print of uh, um, grape bunches in different colors. You recognize it immediately. It's, it's really his signature piece. And this is just amazing. It looks so traditional and modern in the same time. It's, yeah, it's beautiful fashion. Gillian has also been involved in commissioning a film, some beautiful footage from that shoot as well that captures the workshop where Federica Cina works. 
It was just so cinematic because he actually works with sort of 400-year-old printers and the printing process of the fabric has hardly changed. So it was like stepping back in time, but just so, so beautiful on film. But actually, leafing through the magazine, um, given that this is a fall-autumn issue, I was really curious, Sophie, about your approach to this new issue for, for, for the fall season. I think it's a, it's a wonderful moment um, to kind of, you know, gather thoughts and reconnect with the seasons. It's the end of summer, it's a bit of a wrench, but at the same time, it's almost like a new year. And I think that's really important when it comes to September. You have to embrace it and sort of slightly reinvent yourself. So we really want to celebrate the seasons with food and beautiful kind of a sense of kind of bounty and harvest and actually the great bunches and that sense of what Federico Cina is doing is like a little bit kind of it's rooted in folk but it's very progressive and it sums up sort of the spirit of this issue in a way because there's so much modernity but then we're really kind of almost sort of very rooted in in kind of that tradition of the change of the season and and just how you know that wonderful moment where you kind of put on your, you know, it's a crisp morning, you put on your warm woolen jacket and you you feel a sense of excitement at that kind of change happening. I also like how that's reflected in the travel. Or, um, the feature I loved was on Tenerife because we're stepping away from the tourist season and we're going to places, you're taking us to places that you can go off season. And here's somewhere that was associated with package holidays and suddenly we're discovering it through its architecture and its agriculture and its markets. Tenerife, I mean... We've all got to go now. <laughs> uh, Francesca Melendez, who's a wonderful writer, really did a huge road trip looking um, around the island and bypassing anything really that was kind of mass tourism, looking at these little, you know, wonderful small family ventures, ecological projects, but also the amazing concrete architecture, which is just absolutely stunning um, in Santa Cruz, looking at... Um, Calatrava, but other kind of slightly sort of forgotten projects that are epic and just so sculptural. Um, so I think definitely on my itinerary for, for sort of a kind of late autumn break, perhaps. Well, in our drinking and dining section this month, we head to the Larkin Erdman Gallery in Zurich for the launch of a new show of paintings by the artist Man Ray. Erdman is renowned for throwing cocktail-fueled parties with great food, good conversation and a dance floor. A refreshing alternative to polite but stiff champagne-clinking gallery openings. Across the four-page spread in the magazine, we see the party unfurl from drinks to dancing, documented by the photographer Veronique Hugger. She tells us what it's like to be a fly on the wall and her approach to editorial photography. I got into photography as a girl, as a little girl already. I would spend hours looking at the world through my Fisher-Price camera, finding it fascinating. When I grew up, my dad offered me his camera and showed me how it worked. The positioning of the film, the depth of field, the shutter. My fascination with this medium grew and grew, and I loved to spend my days experimenting with the different techniques, and actually the techniques of analog photography. I would spend hours observing the world and photographing the details that caught my eye and uh, 
Yeah, it was a really a passion already. And most of my school breaks and nights were spent in the dark room that we had set up in our basement. And I must have been about 12 years old when I, I knew that this passion would probably be my career one day. I grew up in the days of analog photography and I think that shows in the style of my pictures. Uh, the colors, the light, the composition, as much uh, reflective as spontaneous. And my aesthetic is very direct and graphic, I would say also light and poetic. My approach to photography is uh, in the moment, so when I'm taking pictures, I'm 100% present, doing what I'm doing, starting again and again. It's very powerful, and after more than 20 years in this profession, I'm still fascinating about doing what I do. I've been working with Matt, the photo editor of Monocle and Confect, for many years. He knows how I work and I feel his trust. That's a very nice way of collaboration. So when Musk asked me to photograph this story for Confect um, about uh, the Larkin Erdmann Gallery in Zurich, uh, who was uh, hosting a party for friends and clients, of course I didn't hesitate and I really looked uh, forward to it. So Larkin and his wife Astrid uh, are real hospitality professionals. They really, really throw a super nice party. Everybody was so comfortable and so happy to be there and to see each other again. I, I loved being part of this cosmopolitan group for an evening. The images uh, are super spontaneous and full of life. They transmit the beautiful party atmosphere and the happiness of spending time together. Everything looked fantastic and that was the best atmosphere ever <laughs> for a photo shooting. I mean, you can just dream about that when you, you go with your camera. When you go to a place like that, you don't really know what you're gonna get and who's gonna be there, what's gonna be the atmosphere. And um, everybody gave the best of himself so that the evening was unforgettable, really. <laughs> My favorite image of this shot is the image of Antoine uh, wearing a, um, a pink bunny and holding uh, two round biscuits uh, like sunglasses in front of his, of his eyes while uh, Astrid and Larkin make a toast in front of him. So you just uh, only see the hand of Astrid and Larkin and you see then uh, the face of Antoine. I think it's a very fun image which reflects the Atmosphere of the evening, very joyful, very playful, nice atmosphere. When I get a good shot, when I get the feeling that uh, this is a good shot, what I just shot, I kind of feel super happy and also it lifts me up for the rest of the shoot. It also sometimes uh, gives a direction to the shooting or 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 shows that uh, shows me that I'm that what I'm doing is is good, is right, it's gonna be good. To keep my ideas um, for editorial and fashion photography fresh, I, I need to spend a lot of time in the nature. This is really essential for me. I'm lucky to live in Zurich uh, near the lake or in the forest where I go for long walks along the river. And during swimming in the lake or the walks in the woods or just sitting under a tree, 
I recharge myself and new and fresh ideas come to me. For me, it's not about what I photograph, but rather what my attitude is when I photograph things. So it's very important for me to be fit. Whether it's in reportage, fashion, still life, or in my personal projects, I'm a very spontaneous person and I love to work with the flow of the moment and... And I always uh, look for beauty. I would say the preparation time is an important or even more important than the shooting itself. So actually I, I love all kinds of shoots and uh, if they're prepared well, I can express myself in a lot of ways, which is very nice. I, I feel very free with this medium. I don't like to restrict myself to only fashion or only reportage or still life. It's the seek of beauty that interests me and the, the seek of being always in the in the moment and to let happen what what happens. That was the photographer Veronique Hugger talking about her photo shoot for Confect issue four, which is out now. Elsewhere in the new issue, our reporter Chiara Vamela goes on a Scottish road trip to meet a fashion brand championing the country's tradition and craft. You wouldn't guess that a brand called La Fetiche would be linked to celebrating and preserving Scottish textile heritage. But co-founders April Crichton and Aurelie Forestier aren't just in the business of rehashing tradition. Combining their experience at French maison Sonia Riquiel with a personal fascination with bold and colourful outfits, they have created a collection of clothes that is meant to be long-lasting and timeless, but never boring. Run simultaneously from both Paris and Glasgow, their new brand taps into the artisanal expertise of both locations. Chiara Ramella meets April Crichton to find out more. I think... Having worked so closely together, almost being like family, always was our intention to carry our love of the similar aesthetic forward into something more personal, brand and ethos that embodied our our love of fashion. And expressing it in a very different way, in a more personal way, clothes that felt they had more soul to them, that you could connect with sentimentally and emotionally more than just the next thing season to season is constant changing so an idea of permanency and a little bit like tokenism or something that had more value than just purely garments i guess that was the reason for the name la fetiche so it sort of represents things that have like a talisman like feeling towards them that go beyond just pure product i have read somewhere that the idea was to start with 37 items that are kind of timeless is that still the case or do you have a bit more wiggle room as anything one starts out with a a mission and I think things evolve as time goes on but yeah essentially and strangely when we edit and we take away and certain permanent pieces are kept in the collection from season to season it generally ends around that number which is quite strange I don't know how it works out but we just do instinctively what we're feeling for that season within it could be a permanent piece that's translated in a different color or with a you know like a fun stripe or something and it's uh, mixed with a new pant and generally it comes around to be that number for some reason and being a little freer to think beyond commercial constraints and it is purely an exercise in what we want to present that season 
and being careful to edit in a way that it makes easier for the buyers and also easier for, I think, the consumer, you know, to have too much, I think, it's overwhelming. It's an interesting task to really edit it down to a number of that amount. It just tends to work somehow. I don't know why. It may change next season. But, you know, for the moment, that's what we're doing. <laughs> well, let's talk about the buyers and I guess the commercial side of the business. Yeah. Where do you find the buyers tend to come from? Where has the brand has the most success and where are you stocked? And why do you think that is? I think it's people that fall in love really do. They buy with the heart. They fall in love with the idea, the concept, the colour, the energy of the clothes. And it's generally not one type of age or gender. It's just an aesthetic and it's an idea. The clothes we design are extremely wearable and extremely practical, but they're not normal. So this idea of timelessness and longevity and things lasting is, of course, really important to us. But I guess the excitement and the energy around fashion and dressing to express yourself is really key to everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's expressing a point of view, really. And um, being able to move and do what one needs to do in life, but feel good about it. Yeah. So that, I think, is truly important to clothing that's what I want to I guess I respond to sort of in a very emotional way to clothing yeah I'd like to talk about I guess your formation as a designer as well like what kind of fashion made your heart beat when you were younger and you were training as a designer oh. or, and earlier when you were I guess more in the up-and-coming side of things. What's kind of oh, yeah, in the background of your mind made you fall in love oh, with the fashion? Right. Just, uh, I mean, you'd buy religiously ID magazine, you know, as soon as it came out in the face, and Club Kids, you know, it's how you dress to go out to have fun. It was like absolutely everything. You know, getting dressed up to go for a night out was the absolute fantastic highlight of your week, you know, and seeing everybody around you dressing in that way and on the street and... You know, I wear. I remember wearing like jumpers on my legs and hats. You had to have a hat with everything, and it was a completely head-to-toe glitter outfit that I wore. And then I made a, I think, a mini dress out of fake fur, which I boiled in in the club. You just had to look great and feel good, and then dancing, and that was just like everything. You know, being at Simon's and going out after night, working really hard, and it was just such a wonderful sort of energetic time to be in London I think this was like 86 yeah late 80s but yeah it was music clothes expressing yourself through that clubs not that I'm trying to suggest that the clothes look like they're made for club land but that yeah. sense of fun is has yeah. absolutely remained absolutely. right yeah joyful yeah having fun yeah just create any good energy yeah always looking to wear something a little bit different you know obviously the things you do a little bit I guess people say quirky a lot, but there's a lot of strangeness to it. But I think the strangeness, that's what creates the newness. I'm always looking for a new way of doing things. What does a Scottish craft mean to you? And how much does it mean to you that you're doing something to preserve it in a certain respect? Yeah, I mean, I think as you get older, yeah, the idea of preserving something becomes a little bit more important. And But you realise that... I mean, all of the clothes that and working on that they were working to sort of change and adapt is are things that I've always bought in vintage shops and you know always been around in I've had in my life you know and I mean I've always been adored kilts for example so I've always worn them you know and so the idea of making some personally for myself you know that idea of having something so beautifully authentic and classic and to your sort of design is is something I think is really exciting and. Um, and they feel beautiful to wear, you know. Um, um, 
yeah, I think maybe just as I get older, you get a little bit more sentimental about it, but it's just uh, also having grown up in Scotland and having my roots here and um, that idea of keeping it alive and the uh, connection to the past instinctively that feels the right thing to do yeah and to tell other people the story of it i mean there seems to be a big connection to scottish artisans um and and also a rather romantic sentimental connection to it all over the world which is really it's really nice uh, that but i've always really hoped to take it in a new direction that's really my not to be a tall twee or you know about it just to take it in a really exciting fashion direction Obviously, we've focused a lot on the Scottish side of things because yes. we are here. Um, but there's a whole other, I guess, side to the business yes. that is in Paris Absolutely. and also manufacturing yeah. kind of beyond that yeah. and fabrics that come from beyond that. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about what Orly, your, yes. your, your colleague and partner's side of things is and what is the Paris side of, of the brand and of the business? Well, I think Paris has always been absolutely a huge, huge sort of connection for me. I've worked there for 25 years. And I think the ethos of the way Paris fashion works is in, in my DNA, really, more so than London. So the way that the French approach design and have a respect of it and the craftsmanship of it is extremely, it's, it's awe-inspiring, really. So the, that, I think fundamental sort of ethos to design and respect of it is something that makes us as designers and it connects us physically though we're making a lot of our lingerie scene three pieces in france there's a great history of it and wherever we can we use french made fabrics so we print our prints in france and we use for example broderie anglais we're now in the process of researching a denim that's in uh, made in france so we're always encouraged you know in trying to look for new ways of using France but to be honest there is a bit of a price point issue with making fundamentally from A to Z in France so that's something that we need to work at but find a reason you know a way to do it and get better at it but for making solely there is, is challenging at the moment but wherever we can we um, we do our best to produce products there but our heart and soul is absolutely design led by by everything that we've experience together as designers in 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 france that we've learned there it's interesting that discussion around manufacturing a to z in in, in france or not because you need a willingness mm. from yeah. the manufacturers as well to Absolutely. support people who yeah. perhaps need less volume yeah. than chanel exactly. <laughs> you know you want that same quality yeah. but you want also a, a shorter run flexibility yeah. and do you think that um yeah. you know moving forward in terms of mm. being able to maintain a healthy ecosystem of fashion is that what is also needed some manufacturers that play ball i think definitely manufacturers have got a lot to learn and there's a lot of bit of, bit of catch up to do and flexibility and understanding of, of of smaller units that need to be produced and made but yes i think there's a, a lot of talk around it and people are aware of it more now and i think it will be easier for businesses of our size and stature who are growing that can grow with manufacturers with their encouragement and their assistance and their help. So it's something I always say I'm hopeful, but it's um, in the reality of it, I've yet to see it. You know, we, you have to ask a lot of questions and, you know, beg a lot of people before you, before you get there. But quite usually it's the, it's the, the producer themselves and their engagement and their personality and their, um, and generally we've, we found just absolutely 
beautiful like-minded souls that are willing to sort of carry us and, and take punt on us so it's been hugely encouraging so long may it last and I think I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. That was Chiara Rumella reporting for Confect and you can read about her full Scottish fashion road trip in the new issue. Marcella, it's interesting we've spoken to a few designers who collaborate from abroad, like the duo uh, behind Colville, who, ha- who we had on the podcast a few months ago. Um, what do you think this type of cross-border collaboration does to a brand? I think it, it gives a very, very special twist to a brand. This, if, if it combines two cultures, like this uh, at uh, La Fetiche, it's the... Uh, chic Parisien, you you recognize in the pieces, but at the same time, this Scottish arty, quirky kind of boldness. I don't know how to explain, and gives a very very special mix. And um, uh, the result is a very unique style you recognize immediately. I learned um, the first time, or I heard the first time about the brand by Linda. Linda is the store manager of the Monocle store in Merano. And she wore a beautiful jumper in very special colors. I think it was red and pink, probably green as well. And I asked her, what is this? I never saw something like this. And then she told me about La Fetiche. And I found out more. And I think it's really, it's amazing. I mean, Chiara was up in, I think, Fife. So she went to Glasgow and then went, you know, met all these amazing people, but then went to meet some knitters. There's a wonderful woman called Di Gilpin who's making such creations. But she she wrote something great, which stayed with me, which is that she felt like um, La Fetiche was um, the Breton stripes had gone clubbing. <laughs> it was like <laughs> this kind of yeah. punkish sort of subversive idea of, you know, Glaswegian art and then also this beautiful elegance of, um, you know, Brittany and the, the, the tradition of that region as well. So it's, it's a wonderful clash, but also synergy. I love how, you know, you tend to think that fashion comes from cities and clothes from the countryside. But actually, through Confect, I'm really discovering these incredible fashion designers, you know, whether it's Slovenia or now in, in Scotland, were incredibly contemporary and inventive fashion that you want to wear to give you personality is not necessarily coming from the cities. It can be combined with sort of city making and inspiration. But, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying the way you're sort of introducing these kind of labels to us. Thank you, Gillian. <laughs> but actually, when I was in my hut um, just over the last couple of days, I was speaking to all these artists and, and they were saying like everything you do, you know, when you're in that downtime, when you're like relating to nature and and sort of just having this experience of walking or climbing, it kind of goes into this amazing well of creativity for whatever your medium. And I think that designers really that we've been profiling are using tradition, but also landscape. And, Mm -hmm. you know, April talks in the piece um, about just the Scottish kind of palette, the colour, the colours of the nat- of the natural world and how that also influences what she's doing. And um, it's it's just, it's such a, a kind of incredible um, world that she lives in That and then she's nipping over to Paris every couple of weeks <laughs> when she can, pre-everything. But I think that's really a wonderful way to live and, and create. Continuing the topic of creativity before we go, we give our final word this month to the journalist and DJ Kate Hutchinson, who writes about the importance of jazz clubs and how they've shaped the genre over the past century. (laughs) 
The night I gatecrashed a jazz club in Paris was the night I saw jazz anew. The upstairs room was a no-frills, wooden-tabled, smell-the-bleach kind of place where the music was the only thing that mattered and the homely ambience gave the impression of sitting in someone's kitchen. There was no stuffiness, no snobby reverence suffocating the atmosphere. I say gatecrashed. Really, it was Los Angeles saxophonist Kamasi Washington, figurehead of the current jazz revival, who turned up there after performing at the nearby Bataclan. He and his band members bouldered in as though in a western film, kicking down the saloon door with their spurs and joined the wirier, greyer in-house group on the tiny stage. I had tagged along with this L.A. cohort, chasing the thrill of the night. With Washington steadying himself on a carved wooden cane and launching into a cosmic take on a standard, his band swelling behind him like a wave, it felt like a bit of a Red Sea parting moment, the old guard meeting the young guns. Impromptu jams such as these are par for the course in jazz, which, just like dance music, has a propensity to continue into the small hours, as though the players physically can't put down their instruments. This is often where the magic happens. So it feels particularly cruel that just as Washington had helped to usher in a new generation of fans in recent years, ones who began embracing what was once considered kind of difficult music, the pandemic put a cork in all the fun. In New York, jazz clubs have been an essential part of the after-dark life of the city since their halcyon years in the 1920s, but they are now clinging on by a guitar string. During Prohibition, there were more than 500 swinging speakeasies offering bootleg liquor and live music in Harlem alone. Indeed, as the New Yorker said, to think of American music is to think of those nightclubs stretched out along the streets. Now there are comparatively few that offer live jazz, with many announcing their closure and the future of others, such as the legendary Birdland and Village Vanguard clubs, remaining uncertain. Los Angeles, meanwhile, lost the Blue Whale, the beating heart of the city's thriving jazz community, when it closed last December. Jazz music is a genre that, perhaps more than any other, has been shaped by its spaces. When the style of ragtime and blues swept from New Orleans up to New York and beyond, as black musicians fled the rural South in search of better lives and work in the Great Migration, the music filled vast ballrooms with big swing bands to match. This was the sound of the jazz age, the music of dancing. The venues, which were mainly congregated around Harlem, were, with the exception of the Cotton Club, often racially integrated, which was very radical for the time, as well as being sexually licentious and open till late. At Small's Paradise, which was owned by the titular first African-American nightspot owner, first name Ed, there was a 6am floor show along with breakfast for the straight-through crew. Over at the neighbouring Savoy, the home of Happy Feet, people lindy-hopped so hard that the floor had to be replaced every three years. Jazz stopped being a dancing soundtrack, in the US at least, because of the wartime cabaret tax in 1944. According to Jeff Gold's Sitting In, Jazz Clubs of the 1940s and 50s, one of the few books on this topic, it meant that shows and entertainment became all but unaffordable. However, 
These challenges led to other innovations in the genre. The focus shifted towards smaller groups and experimental individualism began to take centre stage with the dissonant bebop sound in the spotlight, trumpeted by the likes of Miles Davis and saxophonist Charlie Parker. Fast forward to London now, and the much-talked-about jazz scene is very much indebted to its nightclubs and DIY venues that encourage a party atmosphere and inspire a deep feeling of community. At the Church of Sound, the show is in the round, with everyone on their feet, meditating, dancing or whooping when a player takes their solo, a joyful well of mutual support. Or their steam down, a triumph of togetherness, where the young crowd are often so whipped up that the entire floor can turn into a mosh pit. The lack of live gigs during and after the pandemic has had a profound effect on jazz musicians, a reported 49% of whom make their income from performing. And with strict safety measures in place at the venues that have reopened, shows have largely gone back to being seated and with capacity reduced as a result. Who knows what effect it might eventually have on the music, making it more claustrophobic or more sombre perhaps. Jazz needs a lively late-night atmosphere in which to sprawl out and twist itself into new shapes. It is rebel music, breaking the rules and forever challenging conformity. If we don't preserve its venues, then we risk losing the heartland of this creativity. And that's not to mention those heady nights of oblivion where the players create something beyond music that the audiences will never forget. Well, thank you to Kate Hutchinson for that. Gillian, do you have any particular memories of live music that have stuck with you? Well, it's, it's slightly different. It's more recent because I think it was so sad that uh, all the jazz clubs were closed during the pandemic. And what I just found is that uh, a lot of these musicians, I think, you know, needs must, and they started busking. And I just would come across some of the most incredible musicians. I have no idea who they were. Sometimes they were in these sort of empty subways with a few passengers that were traveling on the train, haunting with the echo of the the, the stairwells. Or in parks, playing on their own. And and this is where probably some of the best jazz musicians were having to play. And and to me, that will be one of my memories of the pandemic. Marcella, are you a live music fan? Have you had any formative moments in, in dark and atmospheric clubs? <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> no, actually, it just makes me a little bit sad because I realised it's a long time. I was in a small, cool club playing live music and I at the moment I also don't have plans but at the same time I realized how much I miss it and how much I love it so it really yeah it makes me a little bit sad and I I have really to look out for next concerts in steamy small sexy clubs that you want to stay all night and with all the people around because yeah music is you can have a high-end experience with headphones at home with a glass of wine whatever but it's yeah it's not comparable with a social moment with a lot of people around loving the same music as you do and yeah it's I'm missing it really and I think it's really interesting that Kate talks about how jazz used to be dance music Mm -hmm. and how actually that re-emerged in London like this sense that it wasn't always just this idea you had to sit and look very pensive and you know be quiet it's it's expressive and I think that could be a really good thing for jazz I mean 
I have memories of, of j- the jazz club um, that was directly under my flat in the Rue Saint-Benoît where I lived in Paris for three years. And every night I could hear the, tinkle, like the jazz sets tinkling up the chimney. And so even if I wasn't down there, I could hear like little moments of like, you know, profound, you know, beautiful mm. renditions and they had some great singers. And those moments happened a lot when you were in there all of the concerts would finish and then a whole new cohort would just come in the door, start just just doing, creating, you know, and competing and just people would stand up, you know, finish their dinner and stand up and do a, you know, a, a number that, you know, you, you had no idea was they had it in them. <laughs> and it was, we were always given, because we were les voisins, we were always given a nice little table. But it was a bit of a grotty place in many ways and you could just write your name on the wall. But these places are undervalued in some ways. So I hope we can all return. And when we can, we we do. Do you have a favourite place in London that you're going to start trying book tickets for? Yeah, the Kansas City is near my house and it's tiny. And I've been there a few times, but when that opens, I'm going to be back in. And I'd, I didn't realise the last time I was there would be, it'd be three years before we got to go back again. So it would be a very special moment, I think. And Marcella, is there any spot that you, you favour in, in Zurich that you're hankering to go back to? I'd like to join you next time when I come to London. It's it's always more attractive than you're in the, at your hometown. So please organise some tickets. I will join you next time. Well, we will get that organised and look forward to it immensely. Um, and that's all we have time for on this edition of Confect Corner. Thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company again. Our autumn issue of Confect is out now and you can subscribe at confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listening.